a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 145 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster and owner of Game Time Media in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and share the podcast with all of your friends on your favorite social media outlet. As usual, today's episode is recorded in the almost world-famous Say the Damn Score podcast studio in the basement of my townhome in Burnsville, Minnesota. And I'm maybe not real happy to say that it took over two years, but last week... My wife Sarah and I both finally caught COVID-19 uh, for the first time anyway, and neither of us had real severe cases, and both of us are recovering and maybe should say recovered just fine. However, it goes without saying that last week we didn't feel very well, so it was a slow week, and we focused on getting better and not on career development, so... Uh, there's really nothing much to talk about uh, on that front. It's a slow time of year anyway, and that just makes things even slower. But do not be dismayed. I still recorded an awesome conversation with Larry Costigan. He's best known for being a longtime coordinating producer for Westwood One Sports. He's currently a freelance producer for uh, Westwood One still and other radio platforms, as well as being an editorial consultant for CBS. And without any further ado, Larry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be with you, Logan. First things first, from the intel I could find, you actually got your initial break getting in with, my guess it was probably CBS radio at that. It might have predated Westwood One uh, as an intern at Seton Hall. Uh, tell me how that connection came into place and just kind of what that meant for developing your career as a producer. So my freshman year at Seton Hall, which is uh, in New Jersey, about half hour outside of New York City, um, I ran in. First thing I did when I got to Seton Hall was I wanted to be in broadcasting. I wanted to be an announcer. So I got myself on the radio station there. And then through a contact there, there was an alumni of the station. His name was Jim Hunter, who at the time, he's, he's, I believe he's still currently one of the Baltimore Oriole announcers, but at the time he was doing some baseball play-by-play, but he also did some work um, at CBS Radio Sports. And so he had reached out to the station manager at Seton Hall and said, I'm looking for some interns. If you have any candidates, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. So this would have been um, in the fall of 1992 and which would have been my freshman year at Seton Hall and uh, interviewed with Jim who was doing um, 
doing some play-by-play with CBS Radio Sports Baseball. Uh, he did some football pregame show, and he was um, hosting updates. Uh, they did national updates for CBS Radio Sports back then. So I interviewed with Jim and uh, got the internship with him. And um, I did that for a semester. And, and so that was my first introduction to what I call the professional side of the business. And then, of course, you know, I was still, you know, getting myself acclimated and, and moving up the ladder at the radio station at, at, at Seton Hall. And and because um, at that time, I really wanted to be like the next Marv Albert or Harry Callis. I wanted to be a play-by-play announcer. So that's, that's kind of where I got started. Um, but Jim Hunter was the person that uh, was a Seton Hall alum, and he reached out to me and and kind of got my uh, my track started on the professional side of things. What was the point, and why did it happen when you decided to move from being behind the mic uh, to behind the board? You know, one of the things that um, I learned through my internship and, and over my many years in broadcasting, I've, I've managed and run the internship program a lot of my years when I was at Westwood One, and, and the advice that I would always get would be, you know, um, do you like it? And, and then also how good are you at it? And what do you, how do you stack up against your contemporaries? And, um, and then really the only way you know how you, you answer those questions is you go out and live it and you, and you do the play by play and you see how you are at it. And then you also, um, through the internships that I did, um, and I didn't just do them in radio. I did them in television as well. I also did some in, in film production, all in sports, but I got to see a lot of other sides of the business. And I think the big misnomer out there is when, when younger people, you know, in grade school and high school and beginning of college, they want to get into sports broadcasting. You, you know, at least when I was a kid, it was, well, you need to be a play-by-play announcer or, or a talk show host. And so I really had no idea of all the behind the scenes roles that were, that were existing. And internships, I got to see what all these other people did, producers, directors, board operators, editors, stuff like that. And um, the more I got to see what they did and did some of that work myself, I found myself really enjoying it. And uh, I kind of got to a point after graduation, um, you know, where I was, I was good on the air. I was solid. Um, I like to tell people today that could I be out there doing triple A baseball or minor league hockey? Probably. I mean, I, I was solid and I know what it takes to be at that level, but my goal always was I wanted to work the biggest and best events. I wanted to work final fours and Olympics and masters and super bowls. And it came to a point in my career through consulting with some uh, mentors along the way and also judging myself by contemporaries. I realized that in order to do those events, it was probably going to be behind the scenes in a production side because frankly, there were people that were better than me and more comfortable um, with the microphone. Do you feel like your creative side that I find most producers have, because that's really um, kind of the creative balance of the broadcast is a lot of the behind the scenes work. Do you find that that kind of scratches that itch better? Is that a part of it? Um, you know, yes and no. Um, my style as a producer has always been a collaborator. I've never been one to format out and plan out a broadcast and then just tell the talent, hey, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it uh, A, B, and C at this time in the broadcast. 
So I always like to rely on the announcers as well as the creative side. I mean, there's no doubt when you're the producer, you kind of get the ideas going and you generate some broad strokes of how you want to broadcast to, to go. But then at that point, we, you know, we have what are called production meetings and that's when you collaborate with your announcers. And if there's another associate producer on the broadcast and you all kind of brainstorm together and come up with ideas, but you know, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, you really do scratch that itch with, with having a lot of creativity, the, the planning of it, because it's not just an idea. It's how long do you have to implement that idea? I mean, the unique thing about live play-by-play is you predict a pregame, a halftime, and a postgame. It's very structured in terms of how much time you have, how many minutes of commercials. This is when kickoff is. We have to accomplish everything we want to accomplish, and this is how much time we have to do it. So you're, you, as a producer, you come up with the ideas and then you plan it out. Okay, we have this much time to do this. We have this much time to do that. So, so it, it, it's a lot of organization um, and it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of ideas. But I've always been one to collaborate and generate ideas with, with everyone on my crew. It's never been a dictatorship on my broadcast. Did you come by that organization and that structure ability naturally or is that something you had to work pretty hard at probably even as a little kid i've been very organized whether it be cleaning my room or just managing my time um i think that came in handy but a lot of the skills i compiled over the year it's um it's getting reps learning what's worked what didn't work on a broadcast how can we do it better that didn't work let's not do it again that way having some great mentors over the year that seeing their styles and how they plan things. I mean, organization is such a key, particularly when you're dealing with live broadcasts, because you only have one shot at it and you just, you have to go in with a plan. You, you can't, I mean, there's certain things, you know, I don't want to use the word wing it because you can't control what happens in a game. You may think, the Steelers are playing the Patriots and may play out this way. It may be a high scoring game, but you never really know. But you need to have storylines. You need to have ideas. You need to have a checklist of we want to make sure we address this on the broadcast because it's such a big storyline. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you you do need to be organized. I mean, you, you can't you, you can't try to figure things out on the fly because it's happening too quickly. And, and you, you there is some some reaction that you, you need to react to live things that happen in the game, but you also want to have a list of things that you're trying to accomplish in a broadcast. So, so organizing that and planning it is, is, is huge. And, and, and every second in a live broadcast is important. You know, if you go, if you go two minutes over in your scene set, then where are you going to make up the time? You still have all those commercial breaks to get in. You still have your keys to the game segment. You still want to go to your sideline report. So you need to be structured. You need to be organized. You need to stay on point and on time and on theme with what you're trying to accomplish in the broadcast. When you you mentioned kind of the storylines and when they go in and when they don't, and it's interesting because you guys are working at a much higher level than what I'm working at, where basically the storylines are decided by when I decide I want to put them in. And you guys have the, the big team and – I think I maybe mentioned this in the email. I know you weren't there, but I was a production assistant at you for you guys during the the Final Four in Minneapolis, mostly just because I wanted to go to the Final Four. And uh, 
and I was just shocked by by the level of rigidity is not the right word, but but by structure where it and how much of those decisions are made by the production team as far as to what storylines we're talking about in the flow of a game, and how many of them are made by the broadcaster making a decision at your level. I think it's a collaboration of of knowing. You know, if we're talking about a play-by-play game and, and knowing the two teams, and, and you know, there's no worse feeling than to sign off the air and realize you completely missed the storyline. Like you guys, you never had, you never talked about this, and it was a big storyline. Now, are you always going to get in every storyline that you plan for? No, it's impossible. Um, particularly, the game itself often tells the story. And as I was saying earlier, like you never really, you may have an idea how you think a game's going to play out, but it could throw you for a loop completely. And then you have to adapt on the fly. But, but I always like to have more information than I needed. Even when I was a broadcaster in college, you over, over prepare. I mean, you have a spotting chart with tons and tons of information. You may not get to like 75% of that, but there's no worse feeling at least for me to walk into the booth to do a game and feel like I haven't done every piece of research and know everything that we want to try to talk about, knowing that you won't get to it all, but, but having all that in the reserves. The other thing is like, you don't have time on a live broadcast to be looking something up. So you need to have everyone on your team ready to go. I mean, if you're, if you're going through a media guide or a broadcast manual, while the game is going on, you're not watching the field. You're not watching the court. So you need to have all that stuff prepared ahead of time. So that, that's why the preparation is so important. And like I said, the collaboration for me is important too because you're not going to think of everything as a producer. I mean, you're, you're not a robot. You, you, there's going to be things that you may have overlooked, but that's why you collaborate with your announcers and your statisticians. And if you have another producer um, – you know, even your engineer in some case where you, you say, hey, what ideas do you guys have? And they may have some, some something you didn't think of. And so it's it's so, so important to to try to get everyone on the team involved. And, and that goes all the way down to, like, the most minor role on a crew. Maybe it's an intern. That you, you know, you, 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 I always train my interns to think like producers. You're not an intern. You're a part of the crew. You're important. I want to know what your ideas are. You're your idea, your your job is not to sit in the corner of the room and just take notes. You know, I want to know what you think as well. I was particularly fascinated. I know just sitting in the the production meeting that you guys that you just described, and they were talking about we're going to probably do a, a celebrity interview at like X point of the game, and here are two options if Michigan State is winning and. Like what, if it's Magic Johnson, do we talk to him about the Lakers? Cause that's when he was, there was some controversy. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, I think he was GM and it was just, uh, I was floored just by kind of the level of detail that you guys went into in those production meetings and knowing what was, you, you say you don't know what's coming, but you guys plan for a lot of contingencies. Yeah, I mean, another thing to point out, particularly on games where you have a sideline reporter, if you, you know, I'll give you an example. If you're planning out the scene set and your play-by-play and your analysts in the booth are going to, you know, you tell them we have a two-and-a-half-minute scene set, I normally would say, what do you guys want to talk about? You know, it's their broadcast. You know, it's, it's their, at the end of the day, the listener or the viewer 
is going to judge the broadcast the most on how those two people sound. And, that, and that's important to know. So I would normally would say to them, what do you guys think is important? And then if, and then if I need to add something to that and say, hey, well, you know, maybe we should do it this or we should do it in this order, great. It's important to know where they're going to talk about because then you also have a sideline reporter. And you're going to go to them for a 45-second hit after the play-by-play and the analysts are done their scene set. Well, you need to know what the sideline reporter is going to talk about because if he's going to talk about the same thing that the other two are going to talk about, they've completely stolen his thunder. So everyone kind of has to have a different topic and know, and know what direction we're going. And in television, when I've worked on that side of it, it's not just knowing what they're going to talk about. You're building graphics that are going to be rolling in the, on, the, on the TV screen underneath what these guys are talking about. The amazing thing is, and I haven't been doing television very long, but and what I've seen is if they're going to talk about the quarterback matchup in the first 30 seconds they come on the air, the cameraman and the director need to have shots ready of the two of Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert warming up as they're talking about it. So there's even more coordination with that when you're talking about a television broadcast. What was the biggest adjustment? Just since you brought it up, I think I was going to talk about this later, but you're talking about it now, so I'll talk about it now. Uh, what was the biggest adjustment moving from a radio producer to sometimes TV producer? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, my role in TV is not as a producer. Um, it's it's very different what a TV producer does versus radio. My, my role is as an editorial consultant, which is, you know, helping them with brainstorming ideas and, and what we think we should talk about on the broadcast. And then while the broadcast is going on, are we hitting all that, those points? Are we missing anything? Um, I'm also helping, helping them with the research for the broadcast. But the biggest difference in, in my, my mind is there's a lot more preparation that goes involved in television in terms of, like I said, you're building those graphics. You need to have, make sure the cameramen have the shots ready when you know when the, when the talent are going to talk about that. Um, the other biggest thing I noticed is the crew size. You know, for a, for a typical... Um, Monday night football game that I would produce for Westwood one on the radio side, you're probably dealing with two announcers, in some cases a sideline reporter, an engineer, a statistician, a spotter, and then a board operator in the studio that's playing the commercials and the production elements. That's it. (laughs) There's nobody else. You're talking about eight or nine people. All right, now flip that over to the television side. It could be a crew 50, 75 people. If you're talking about like a Monday night crew where they have more camera people and maybe a second production truck or an event like the Super Bowl, it could be in excess of 200 people. So there's a lot more people that are are needing to um, be on the same page and be coordinated and know what everybody's role is. Um, You know, I I like to think when, when you're a radio producer, you're wearing a lot of hats because you, you really are the one who's, making sure everyone is doing their job and is prepared and ready to go. In, in the TV side, there's a lot more collaboration with the senior people on the crew, making sure everyone else is ready to go as well. So we're going to get more to stuff. We kind of got off track in a, in a positive way early, but I want to get back a little bit to kind of your career climb because uh, we started sure. uh, talking about how you kind of got in the door, but you were able to climb the ladder all the way up to – coordinating producer at one point at Westwood One, which is one of, if not the premier uh, national radio network in the country. It kind of, what was the process for you 
uh, climbing the ladder. Yeah. So, so my internship, um, as I mentioned earlier, the first one I ever had was at CBS radio sports and then, uh, met some key people there that said, you know, I said, oh, I really enjoy radio. And they're like, well, you need to go experience television as well. And you need to go experience some, the, the film editing side of it as well. So you need to do as many different internships as possible and as many different things as possible and as many different roles as possible. Once again, to figuring out the two questions that I think are the most important for anyone in this business is what are you good at and what do you like to do? So I, I did those things. I did a television internship at ESPN television. Um, I did a, a film editing one for a company called Phoenix Communications which back then was the equivalent of NFL films, but for Major League Baseball. Since then, they've taken everything in-house, but they used to outsource it to a, you know, a company called Phoenix Communications. And um, they would do like a plays of the week feature. They would do this week in baseball TV show. So a lot of uh, film and editing and, and a little bit of the TV side. Um, so I did a lot of different internships. And then I graduated. Got an opportunity to go get my master's degree at Seton Hall and be a graduate assistant and continue my role at the radio station. And um, I kind of would, thought I wanted to go to graduate school because I thought, you know, I'd like to have it in my back pocket someday and maybe I wanted to teach college and then I might need a PhD. So they're offering me a scholarship, for lack of a better word, as a grad assistant. And uh, so I stayed on and did two more years at Seton Hall there. Got my master's in corporate and public communications. Um, probably overeducated for, for broadcasting. You don't need a master's degree, but you know, you can never have too much education. And uh, upon that, um, as I was finishing up my master's degree, um, one person I met at um, CBS radio um, during the day was a producer, young producer back then by the name of Howard Denneroff was starting his career off um, as a entry level producer and he offered me the chance. I had, I had done an internship with him my senior year of undergrad uh, on, a, on a Sunday night baseball show. And uh, he liked my work. And he said, we're looking for production assistance to go to Nagano, Japan for the 1998 um, Winter Olympics. Would you be interested? Of course, the answer to that was yes. <laughs> and uh, you use the term scratch your itch. I mean, going there. If I didn't know at that point what I wanted to do, that kind of solidified it, that I wanted to work behind the scenes. I wanted to do what Howard was doing. I just loved what he did, and I loved his work ethic and um, loved his style, his dedication. And it really was a, it's great to have someone like that who was a mentor, especially as a probably 23-year-old kid at the time. So I went to Nagano for a month, loved it. Um, and then uh, finished up graduate school, um, tried to get a job in broadcasting and PR, anything. I mean, I must have applied to over 100 jobs around the country. And there weren't as many jobs back then as there are now. There wasn't as many networks. There wasn't as many games on the air. Um, so I, I struggled. Um, and then, you know, stayed in contact with Howard. CBS Radio had just been, um, I don't know if it was bought or they merged with a company called Westwood One. And Howard um, was transitioning over as a CBS radio employee to Westwood One. And they were relocating from Washington, D.C. to New York City. And I lived in North Jersey. And Howard said, hey, I don't need anyone full time. But would you want to come in and, you know, be a board operator and, and um, help me out? And 
you know, do some air checks and some production work and uh, love to have you. And doesn't pay a lot, but if you're interested, love to have you. And once again, of course, I jumped at the opportunity and uh, started, you know, working three days a week, playing the commercials for the games and whatever he asked me to do, I said yes. Just kind of learned along the way. If you really want to do this, it's a competitive industry. And when everyone else says, no, I don't want to work on a holiday or a weekend, and you say yes, and you outwork people, you can move up quickly. And um, that was the case with me. I basically said, yeah, I'll work Thanksgiving. I'll work New Year's Eve. Uh, I'll work Christmas. You know, the fact is, that's what sports are played, and they're played on the weekend. So, um, you know, as a 23, 24-year-old, when a lot of my friends were out doing the social thing, I was really focused on my career and um, Howard's career was moving up. He liked the work that I was doing and kind of, I like to say he brought me along for the ride, but I also really busted my butt to let them know that this is what I want to do. And, and, and I can be an asset to any organization. You mentioned during that answer you really loved what you were doing at a certain point. And one of the things that you probably don't know about, but uh, I did a lot of soul searching and really thinking about what I want out of this industry and really kind of started to dig into what are the things in it that really bring happiness to my life. And I like to know what those are for other people. What is it at the basis level that you love about broadcasting and producing? I'll focus it even further than that. It's not just broadcasting. It's sports broadcasting. Ever since I was a little kid, I've loved sports. You know, um, we're talking like three, four years old, like taking, remember the old Trivia Pursuit game? when They used to have a sports edition. And they had, <laughs> I I know, they had like over a thousand cards in there. I literally would go through the box and memorize the answers. Like that's how much of a sports fan I was. I mean, I just loved watching it. Um, loved watching Biggie's basketball and I'm from originally from South Jersey. And so I followed the Phillies and the Eagles and the Sixers and the Flyers. And I just, I could, would watch sports. I play sports all the time. And um, so, you know, it's, it's great to be able to tell people that you really, really love your job. And I mean, it's never really feel like it felt like a job for me all these years. I mean, I get paid to go out to arenas and stadiums and watch sports games. I mean, it's it's a pretty cool job. And, and, and like that little research I was doing as a kid, now I do that research to prepare for a broadcast, but it's still fun information. If, I, if I'm doing a Bengals and Ravens game, I'm enjoying reading the media notes. Like some people like to read magazines and books. I like reading that stuff. I'm a sports fan. And so it's, it's been really cool for me to have a job like this that I – I've never really felt once in my life that, you know, I dreaded going to the office, I dreaded going to the stadium. It was just, it was just always the content and the work I was doing was fun and it was enjoyable. And when you, and when you can do those things, I think it adds extra motivation. There's so many people out there that maybe have a career or job that they don't like, or they switch a lot. It's never been the case for me. I, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to do this and, and I've had the chance over the last 25, 30 years to have that opportunity to do it. It's been so, so much fun. With that in mind, you know, you were one of the unfortunate people who during the COVID shutdown fell victim to a layoff, at least for a time being. How difficult was that news to accept? And then how did you, 
kind of build a strategy of how to respond to that? I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. It was, it was devastating. Um, not that I didn't think I could get another job in the business. I mean, let me backtrack for a second. COVID was devastating for, for everyone in this country. You know, it, it was not easy on on anyone. The first thing that got canceled during COVID was the NCAA tournament, like that March. Like literally it happened a week before the tournament, which is my favorite event that I work every year. And, and so, so initially... I missed that. I mean, there was the shock of that. And then, um, and then there was three months of, we really didn't have any sports going on. There was nothing to broadcast. So it was very boring. And then came the news in in July, I guess, four months later that, you know, the company went through, you know, Westwood one went through a lot of layoffs and turnovers and not just in the sports department and a lot of departments. And, And unfortunately I was one of the people that was, um, was let go. And uh, it was, it was devastating from the sense that not only did I miss the sports, I missed the people that I worked with. You know, Howard was my boss for, for 21 years and he brought me there. I loved it. And and as as he told me, this is just an unforeseen circumstance where the, where the the industry and the country in general um, was going through what we went through in their, Lost a lot of money by not having the NCAA tournament, not having events, not just Westwood One, but all, but all the networks. So, um, so unfortunately, I fell victim to that, and um, and I knew that was what hurt the most was I was going to miss doing that job because I really loved it. I loved being a coordinating producer for that. So there's the shell shock of that, and then eventually you, you know, you have to pick yourself up and and say to yourself, you know, life goes on. Let's start writing the next chapter. And, and um, the difference between trying to write that next chapter at, at my age after my experience, as opposed to, as I mentioned, that first year out of grad school, taking a year to find that first job, it's a, it's a big difference because people in the industry have met you over the years and they know your work ethic and your skill level. So you have a lot of friends in the business. And um, through people knowing my situation um, and then them knowing of opportunities that are out there, it led to other opportunities. And that was, you know, kind of what gave me the opportunity at CBS. It was, it was um, Kevin Harlan, who I worked with a long time on the radio side, um, saying, hey, I've got an idea. Would you be interested in, in doing some television work? At the same time, Howard saying, Hey, I know you're not with us full time anymore, but um, if you're going to do freelance with CBS, would you also still want to do freelance with me? Because you know we didn't you didn't lose your job because you weren't good at it. Okay, you lost your job because of a pandemic, and we still have to get these broadcasts on the air. And while I can't have you be full time as a coordinating producer because they they shrunk his staff, there's still that opportunity to produce games, which. Frankly, my job as a coordinating producer, I did a lot of different things, but my favorite thing to do was what was what I always wanted to get into the business, which was be at the stadium and produce those games. So I'm still able to do that as well. The primary audience for this is play-by-play announcers, and every now and then I like to have people who are behind the scenes just because they bring such a different view of how things, I don't know if it should go, but of how they look at a broadcast and in your opinion, what is something that a play-by-play broadcaster can do 
to make to be easier to produce that would help from your point of view for the broadcaster? What do you look for? It was not very eloquently stated, but I think you know what I mean. No, I mean, I, I think it, it, once again, it goes back to the, the collaboration process. And, um, you know, I always want to try to get better as a producer. Um, I love working with announcers that are open to ideas and um, open to, um, you know, critique and correction if necessary. Um, people that um, are not like so focused in their lane that they're not willing to, you know, try something different or, you know, get better at it. So um, one thing I love is I love to work with announcers that um, are willing to collaborate, willing to share ideas, willing to get better, um, you know, um, put themselves out there, you know. Um, you know, one thing I should point out, though, you know, I've, my philosophy as a producer is, you know, you, you need to adapt your style depending on which announcers you're working with because they're, they're not all the same. And, you know, your job as a producer is to put everyone in position on the team to succeed. And um, knowing what an announcer likes, a specific announcer likes it one way. You know, for example, this announcer may be completely comfortable with you talking in his ear constantly. And it could be something like giving him third down numbers in his ear as he's calling the game. And then there may be another announcer that um, would prefer you not do it that way. So your job, Larry Costigan is the producer, is not to say, well, Larry does it this way for everyone because, you know, I'm the producer. No, you need to, you need to put everyone on your team in positions to succeed. And, you know, how do you do that? Well, you find out what, how do they like you to produce? You know, because one announcer one, what might want it a certain way. Another example would be, you know, is this announcer, you know, a little younger? Like I just got done producing a um, women's lacrosse national championship and the announcer was, you know, 24 years old. He was a recent college graduate. There's a lot more things that I may need to tell him that I may not have to tell Kevin Harler or Kevin Cooper. There may be a lot more guidance that I need to give someone. So you need to be constantly changing and adapting and helping them when necessary. There's things that you, you know, you point out to a former player who's an analyst that maybe this is his first year doing this, as opposed to a seasoned play-by-play announcer that's been doing this for 25 years. Let's flip that question then. What are traits from announcers that are difficult to work with from your point of view? I, no names or anything, but I'm sure that you've run into them. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say difficult. I, I think it's it's sometimes frustrating when you might point out things and say, hey, I think you could be a lot better if you tried it this way. And, um, you know, maybe they're not. I guess the most frustrating thing sometimes to me is when people are not receptive to ideas. And, and you know, I hold myself to a very high standard. And I was talking about my preparation for a broadcast. The one biggest thing that I want from my announcers is you show up ready to work. You know, don't feel like you can just show up and be good because you're not. I guess the frustrating thing, you know, the usual word, the difficult thing is, is when I don't feel like I'm getting that maximum effort in terms of preparation out of the announcers that I put in for myself. Because it doesn't matter to me if it's the Super Bowl or it's the Women's National Lacrosse Championships or if I was producing a Yahtzee tournament. It, to me, 
every every event is the Super Bowl. I don't produce it any differently. I don't prepare any differently. I don't say, well, this is on 700 stations, so I'm going to try harder. No, I, I give it the same amount of preparation and effort, no matter what the broadcast is. And um, I expect that out of everyone on my crew. I, I hold them to a high standard the same way I hold myself to a high standard. So, so that would be the most frustrating thing for me is when you, you have someone that you have an announcer that's not prepared. I, I will say to you that I haven't run into many play-by-play announcers if that's been an issue over the years. Sometimes I've run into it with some, some analysts that are former players where they think that, well, I had a Hall of Fame career. Or I had a Pro Bowl career. I was an all-star. I can just show up, announce what I'm seeing and analyze it, but not having knowledge of the two teams as much as I should. And I've run into that sometimes over the years. So that's, that's frustrating. What is it like producing the Masters, where you're over such a wide swath of gorgeous land, um, you're doing golf on the radio, uh, which is challenging to begin with, Kind of, what yeah. are some of the unique uh, stories or experiences that you've had doing that? I mean, it's it's a different type of broadcast. I mean, it's there's you know, a different type of intensity. I mean, I, I think golf on radio, it's not it's not your typical play by play, paint the picture, constantly telling me what you're seeing. It's a little bit more of some of that, but a lot of talk show, a lot of storytelling. I mean, there's so much time in between shots. You know, a Tiger Woods can tee off on the 18th hole. He's not hitting his second shot for eight more minutes. So, you know, you're you're telling stories. You're, you know, maybe educating the audience. It's 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 different. It, it's 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 almost like um, role reversal. The analyst on golf talks more than the play-by-play guy because um, or play-by-play woman because they have to you know explain. What's, what's the player thinking in the shot? You know, really the only thing the play-by-play guy is jumping in is when that was what, when the golfer is over the shot and then they're describing it, but it's, 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 it's different in that sense. Um, it's, it, you're hearing a lot more of the analyst than radio uh, on radio than you are. And even on TV, you're hearing more of the analyst than you are the play-by-play person. So it's, 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 it's different. I think it's a lot more um, like a talk show. I mean, I, I listen to the, the golf channel on Sirius XM. I think they do a great job with it. Um, I think you need people in that analyst chair that have played at that high level. They, they need to have played the masters, you know, because when they're talking about how do you play the eighth hole, they need to have played it. They need to have played it like in the masters tournament. And, and I think that's, that's important. And they're going to give you um, a, a unique inside perspective on that and let's face it if you're listening to golf on radio you're a golf nut you love you love it you know i think football and basketball there's more casual people they're saying oh this is a big game i want to listen to monday night football it's the cowboys and the and the steelers i think if you're listening to golf on radio you are a big golf fan because it is a different type of broadcast so what is your actual like physical setup for a golf broadcast are you like in a truck looking at monitors kind of seeing the action, saying, okay, we're going to go to Kevin Kugler on hole X, and then yeah. are, are you on a tower? Are you in a truck? What's your physical set? I mean, we've, we've done it differently over the years. Um, we, we have been in a tower, which is it's a great perspective. We were in a tower at the 
you know, Augusta or the U.S. Open, you're like we're literally right over the 18th green. I mean, and I'm a golf fan. I love to play golf. I mean, it's it's a pinch me moment. Like this is this is so cool. I get to look down on on the 18th green, and right behind me, if I turn around, the ninth green is right there at Augusta. So, so that was that was great to see it from that perspective. But from a producing standpoint, if you're asking me what's what's an easier way to produce it, it's to be in a truck with monitors on a wall where you can see every hole. Because, and the reason for that in radio is you only have so many broadcasters out there. There's 18 holes. Some, some courses you can use a wireless mic and someone's following a certain group. But once again, there's a lot of groups. So if you have the monitors, there's a lot of holes that you have to call. The announcers have to announce by looking at a monitor. You know, like your anchors at 18 are calling a lot of stuff by watching it on TV. So if I, you have that wall of monitors as a producer, it's easier to see, okay, he's about 60 seconds away from hitting this putt because you can see what he's doing on the green. And, you know, when you're at, when you're at the tower at 18, you don't have all those monitors. You're completely relying on the announcer that's at that hole saying, okay, Larry, he's going to be ready to putt in 60 seconds. But you can't see it. So you, you completely have to trust that. And why is that important? Well, Let's say you're trying to get to that putt so you don't miss Tiger putting it at the ninth hole, but Mickelson's getting ready to hit a birdie putt at the fourth hole. So, and you want to get to both of them. So you really need to, your announcer to say he's 30 seconds away. So you can, announcer A can call the Mickelson putt and then quickly get it over to the other announcer at the other hole calling the Tiger putt. So as a producer, I like to have a visual. I like to be able to see what's happening and, and it's helpful to know the timing of it. So I know how long is this guy before he really hits his shot. It's also important of, let's say he's not going to hit the shot for three minutes. I can get in a commercial break here. So, I mean, that that's also important. Like you're, you're trying to get all, particularly on like a Sunday, a final round, and you're trying not to miss any big shots. You need to try to go to all of them live, but at the same time, this is a commercial format. and There's a bunch of breaks that you have to get in. So you're trying to, get the big putt and then know that there's not another big shot for three more minutes. So let's quickly sneak in that commercial break. Hopefully that answers your question. It's kind of a long answer. It does. I find it extremely interesting. Do you do a lot of, you know, if Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods are putting simultaneously, do you have one announcer do one and then record the other one and play it very shortly after as if it's live? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if it's, yes, the answer is you would have the, um, if you're covering Tiger putting live and Mickelson's putting at the same time, you tape it. You know, I don't try to confuse the audience. I mean, if you're going to run it 30 seconds, 60 seconds later, yeah, and you 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 have the announcer call the Tiger putt, and then he sends it over to announcer B with Mickelson. And we don't we don't say that it's live. We don't say that it's tape. We just we say let's Mickelson now on eighth putting for birdie. Let's go to Joe Jones. Okay, if you're going to miss something by three, four minutes, you would have the answer say moments ago, Phil Mickelson had a birdie putt. Because, I mean, in this day and age of Twitter and everybody's got the live updates on their phone and the scoreboard on their phone, you don't want to try to create something that's live that really happened five minutes ago. And you're also you're also running back take interviews that you did. Maybe maybe your, you know, your reporter right off the 18th green just interviewed McElroy and so you have that interview ready to go. And so you're, you're trying to find the right opportunity of, okay, live action is slowing down for a second. 
I've got two minutes to go get to go run that McElroy interview right now. What is your favorite broadcast horror story from a producer standpoint? And when I say that, it's not something that's actually horrific. It's just something some day where everything goes terribly, terribly wrong in an unpredictable way that you can laugh about now. I mean, you know, the the worst thing any producer will tell you is when there's a technical problem. Because, and I'll be the first to admit, do I have some technical background in terms of what the engineer does? Yeah, I know. I need to know what they do. But in terms of fixing a problem, um, there's no worse feeling when you know the broadcast connection to the studio is not working. When the engineer is rattled and frazzled. So I did have it. I did have a game at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I don't even remember who the Wolverines were playing. This was this was a long time ago, um, where the engineer just was having some technical problems, and the one thing after the other kept happening. He kept getting rattled and frazzled and sweating, and, and it got to a point where you know I tried to stay out of the way and let them figure out how to fix it themselves. We were getting close to the airtime. He wasn't fixing the problem. And I was like, I don't know if we're going to get on the air. And it, it's an awful feeling because you've got 300 affiliates out there that at noon when you're supposed to go on the air, they're expecting the broadcast. You've got to be ready to go. You've got to get on the air. So that was one That was one incident. Another incident was I did a, a Buffalo Bills game once, uh, an NFL game at 1 o'clock, and they had a power outage in the stadium. And so TV was completely knocked off the air. We were completely knocked off the air. And um, I, I quickly just thought to myself, you know, it was a day game. So after the, you know, it was light out. So they were going to keep playing because they didn't need lights. The fans were there. So they were going to keep playing. So I quickly thought to myself, you know, how do I get my guys on the air? So pulled out a cell phone. We called the studio because you can connect on a phone line to the studio. And they literally, these two announcers, it was Bill Rosinski and Dan Reeves. And they call the game by passing a cell phone back and forth. You just adapt. And you look, and you know, when you when you talk about in the moment, it was a horrible thing. It was a you know, horror show. But when I look back on it now and I say, you know, we got back on the air within three minutes of being knocked off just by quick thinking. Meanwhile, TV did not do a broadcast the entire first half. Greg Gumbel was doing the game for CBS. Because they couldn't get back on the air. They needed power. We didn't need power on radio. We just used used the phone. And they passed it back and forth. So I look back on it now, and at the time it was a horror story. But years later, it's one of my proudest moments. Because it was like that adrenaline rush, of, which is why I love live play-by-play. It's like making those quick, critical decisions on the fly. How worried were you that that cell phone was going to run out of battery? Uh, even yet, you, we had a charger ready to go. I mean, and they, I think they did restore power in the, in the stadium the second half. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that was, you know, that we were staying on the air. And like, we, I'm so proud of my announcers. It's not easy to do. Like, they, they don't hear themselves at that point. They're literally talking into a phone and passing it back and forth. And that was years ago. And something happened recently during the NCAA tournament where, a player dived out, dove out of bounds this past March. I was not producing it. Uh, Westwood One was there. Kevin Kugler was announcing the game. 
and he completely knocked off all the internet lines, which is how they broadcast now. And the same thing, they had to pull out a phone and Kevin called the game into a phone. And you stay, you do what you need to do to stay on the air. Because at the end of the day, it sounds great how good it sounds and have this great effects feed. But at the end of the day on radio, what's the most important thing is telling the listener what's the score, what's happening in the game. And you can do that with a phone the same way you can a headset. So it's, it's, it's critically important to just relay that information, let everyone know what's going on. It might not sound as good, but at the end of the day, time and score and description, it happens. Just got to say the damn score. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, you got your co-host here now. My German Shepherd is saying hello in the background, so so your audience knows that she's agreeing with what I'm saying, hopefully. Perfect. We're just about done. One of the things I like to ask everybody is, what announcers, if you have a day off, are you excited to listen to if you're just cruising the dial, listening to a game, uh, both on a national level and maybe an under-the-radar person that people don't know about? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm going to be partial to, to the people that I've worked with over the years. And, and one of the jobs as a coordinating producer, I had input into the hiring that we did with those announcers and retaining them and giving them promotions and roles that they did. So, so Ian Eagle is one of my favorites. Uh, I think he's so talented and he calls, he's so good at so many different sports. Obviously, Kevin Harlan and Kevin Kugler are two of my favorite play by play announcers. Um, you know, from an analyst standpoint, I think PJ Carlissimo is, is outstanding in explaining things on on, um, on a basketball broadcast. Um, people that I've not had a chance to work with, but um, probably one of the reasons I'm in the business was um, was Al Michaels. I mean, I just think he's still at this at this stage in his career, he's still phenomenal. I love the sound of his voice. I love his pacing, his description. Um, the late great Dick Emberg was another person that I got into the business because I just thought he was phenomenal as a storyteller. I mean, um, my all-time favorite announcer, just because I just think he's so, so good at everything that he does on a broadcast, he's, he's recently retired, was, was Doc Emmerich. And, and hockey is not even my favorite sport to watch or listen to, but he's just energy and entertainment level and knowledge. Um, you didn't listen to a broadcast without walking away smarter hockey fan after having listened to Doc Everett. I mean, that's just how good he was and, and my favorite announcer of all time. And I actually got the chance to work with him when, when Westwood One did the radio playoffs. Back when ESPN had the TV rights, Doc was, quote, unquote, a free agent for the Stanley Cup Finals and the conference finals. And so I had a chance to produce with him. As good as he is as an announcer, he's even better of a person. Since you are in a position that I'm a little less familiar with, as I'm a broadcaster, I've never been a producer, is there anything that I should have brought up that I haven't yet? I don't usually ask this question, but I'm going to do it today. You no, know, I, I think we are, you know, and one thing I would always tell younger, younger announcers um, or younger producers is remember – we're announcing sports for a living. It's fun. Let's make it entertaining. Let's, and it, let's, I always tell people our job is to entertain and inform. You know, we're, we're lucky enough to get to do sports and don't take ourselves too seriously. There's so much bad things going on in the world. You know, there's wars going on and there's, uh, you know, pandemics. You know, and the beauty of sports is we don't really have to go down that road. 
We just need to have fun. People that watch sports are passionate about it and they love it. And uh, so I think that's the biggest thing when you're watching or listening to sports on radio is, is really try to, you're in the stadium, try to portray how much fun it is to be there and, and, and call this game or produce this game um, because it's sports. And at the end of the day, it's, it's a happy ending no matter what. If you watch the six o'clock news, the first 15 stories may all be tragedies, fires, murders, you know, pandemics. With sports, it's not like that. You're not a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's frustrating for them. One of the reasons that's I never really wanted to walk. That's just a joke. Exactly. I mean, one of the reasons I never wanted to walk, you work and talk radio and even sports talk radio is, is that negativity fact. I'm just a positive person by nature. And that's why I love play by play because I just think it's so, so cool to get to announce these things. And at the end of the day, it's, it's something fun that's happening. A football game, a basketball game, it's fun. And for a lot of people, it's an outlet to take them away from all those negativity, negative things that may be happening in, in the world or their life. Sports is a great outlet where we can forget about all our problems. We can get into our chair or in our car ride and listen for a couple hours. It just it takes us away from all those problems. If you're a fan of that team, it's just so, so much fun, especially when your team wins the game. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up. Once again, we're talking with Larry Costigan. He is the freelance producer currently and editorial consultant at CBS. And Larry, thanks so much for joining me on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for having me, Logan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on Twitter, at Radio underscore Logan. That's where I post all the updates about the show and just about my personal life and what's going on. So you should definitely give me a follow there. We love it when we get Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback. It's really appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.